Welcome to How Labour Should Deal with the Global Economy. Apologies for a bit of a late start. We had some technical issues with the mic. Uh, we still have some technical issues with the mic. Can you hear me now? Okay, I will keep it close to my lips. Um, so, I'm Emma. Uh, I work for an organisation called Platform, um, and together with uh, Labour Energy Forum, uh, we're putting on a series of two days events at Buddy Bar, which is the fish and chip shop near the conference centre, where we're collectively imagining uh, an energy future, a radical energy future. Uh, but right now, I'm here to chair the session here um, and introduce uh, three directors from three other radical NGOs. Um, not naming any names, but I do find that some NGOs have a tendency to repeat the same line, saying the same thing over and over again. But you can rely on these three for really sharp, insightful analysis that actually responds to the current situation. Um, so I'm really looking forward to what they have to say today. And the three speakers we have are Sarah Jane Clifton from Jubilee Debt Campaign, Nick Dearden from Global Justice Now, and Asad Rayman from War on Want. So today we're looking at how a Labour government should be fighting globally to tackle neoliberalism. Uh, and really we're looking at how this needs to centre a progressive internationalism. With the impact of almost 10 years of austerity being felt really brutally in the UK, it's understandable why there has been a focus on domestic policy and advancing a domestic socialist agenda here. But this must not come at the expense of a progressive international agenda. And this is because, as socialists, we clearly think that it can't come at the cost of that. That wouldn't be acceptable. But also because it just isn't viable. We all know we can't have a kind of one-state socialist country under the strictures of global neoliberalism. If we work as individualists, we're basically making it easier for global capital. So this is what we're going to be looking at today. Um, and I think our speakers are going to be offering a critique and also some alternatives. Uh, we're going to give each speaker sort of 10 to 15 minutes to really get their teeth into the topic and then have plenty of time to open it up to the floor to get responses from all of you. So I'm going to begin by handing over to Nick Dearden, who's going to talk about how we can challenge neoliberalism. Uh, and yeah, thanks, Nick. Thanks, Emma. Um, really, really good to see the hall full, and um, it doesn't surprise me in many ways, because I think that at its grassroots base, Labour has always had um, a sharp sense of the need for internationalism. Um, and that inter sense of internationalism has, I think, often come more from the grassroots of the Labour Party and the wider movements um, than it has from the leadership. And I think that's because so many people understand, um, as Emma says, that you can't have a good domestic policy and build a more equal country, a more sustainable country uh, with less poverty, um, unless you have a decent, fair, international policy, especially in the kind of integrated world we live in now. Labour was founded at a time um, when the world was also, the world economy was also very integrated, when international capital um, was also completely out of control and needed to be reined in. And the need for international action was kind of hardwired into um, many of the policies that the early Labour Party um, put forward. 
What's more, as Emma says, our country has grown rich, not just off the backs of our own laborers, of workers in this country, but also because our governments successively have pillaged other parts of the world. And we can't now just pull up the drawbridge um, and pretend that the rest of the world that our governments have done so much damage to don't exist. Now, I've just been over in Spain, and um, people in Spain, um, activists, uh, members of Podemos and so on, are looking with huge interest at this country at the moment. It's quite an odd situation to be in, actually, when you go around the world and people are actually quite excited about politics um, in, in Britain. Um, it's, a nice, it's a nice position to be in, um, but definitely there's a feeling there that a Corbyn government in Britain would be a game changer in Europe, um, and would have a significant impact on, pol on politics in the rest of the world. So I think that we as activists need to get better, if we're not already doing it, at spending time talking to, learning from our comrades and colleagues in other parts of Europe and other parts of the world, learning from their successes, learning from their um, mistakes. And we have an incredible opportunity. I mean, the, the one MP who our organizations could always have guaranteed would, send, would sign any early day motion, would ask any question, um, would do whatever we asked of him in Parliament would be Jeremy Corbyn, um, and the second one would be John McDonnell. Um, and we've seen some of that progressive international agenda reflected um, in the manifesto this year, the idea that we should actually stop selling arms to Saudi Arabia, um, a huge step forward for this country. Nuclear disarmament being put on the agenda again for the first time in 30 years in this country. Um, incredibly exciting discussions are happening. But I also think there's a real danger that the internationalism gets lost in the incredible challenges that we're going to face domestically. And I think it's up to us who care about um, th these policies to begin thinking um, more ambitiously, more radically, and to really begin mobilizing um, for a fundamentally different set of international um, policies, international economic policies particularly, um, because that's the only way to transform our world from this awful neoliberal system which has turned um, all of our societies into a gigantic marketplace and everything that we care about into just so many goods and services to be bought and sold um, for the highest price. I'm going to start by talking about trade, because that's one thing we've been working on for a long time. Um, successive governments in this country have um, believed and repeated the mantra that free trade is the only thing that matters. It's going to create growth, it's going to create jobs, um, it's going to give us cheaper and more interesting products from all over the world. What's not to like? Well, let's just remember our history. Sure, trade can be a good thing, but trade can also be a really bad thing. I mean, many of our most famous cities were built on the trade in people. That was what we regarded as free trade 200 years ago. You know, our wealth has been built on the decimation of countries like um, India. You know, the, the province of Bengal at the time, one of the richest, most prosperous areas of the world, was destroyed by our version of trade. China was forced at the point of, um, of guns and gunships to trade opium. That was what we meant by trade in the 19th century. So sure, trade can be a positive thing, but it's certainly not the most important thing. And the way that this country has often viewed free trade um, has been to the detriment of many peoples and countries across the world. What's more, in recent years, trade has become about more than just reducing tariffs, more than just about um, charging less for goods that come into our country. Um, however positive or negative we might regard that um, push towards lower tariffs, trade today is about 
pretty much everything that we care about. Um, and the reason for that is trade rules at an international level are enforceable, unlike so many human rights laws, environmental laws, and so on. And so big business has recognized this. Big corporations have seen this, and they've tried to put more and more stuff into trade deals because it means that their rights become, through those trade deals, enforceable at an international level. Um, and we saw this with TTIP. So people know about TTIP, the trade deal between the United States and the European Union that we fought against. TTIP was basically about everything, about what kind of economy we have and what kind of society we live in. It was about deregulation, like our food policy, um, our, our um, prohibition on GMOs and antibiotics and hormone beef and all the rest of it. Um, they are seen as trade barriers by industrial agribusiness in the United States. They say those things don't matter as democratic policy decisions that have been made by a democratic country. They're trade barriers and you need to get rid of them. That's what TTIP was all about. Trade deals are about patents that give monopoly rights to gigantic pharmaceutical corporations that then price medicines out of the range of ordinary people who really need them across the world and cost our NHS an absolute fortune, even though our tax money has paid for the research into those medicines in many cases. It's about government procurement, governments at a local and national level not being able to use our tax money to support local farmers growing good healthy produce or local businesses, um, but having to take goods from transnational corporations because they charge less, because we know how they treat and employ their workers. It's about public services and the ratchet up of privatization and liberalization. And finally, it's about this idea of investor protection, investor rights, giving big business, giving the super rich really um, enforceable rights that the rest of us just don't have. And this is symbolized in TTIP and in trade deals by these things we call corporate courts that essentially allow a separate legal process through which foreign corporations and big business and big investors can take legal action against governments doing whatever it is that they don't particularly care for, that threatens their their products, that threatens their profits. So the trade agenda has become absolutely antithetical and contrary to our ability to build a better society. So we need to use this opportunity to totally rewrite the rules of global trade. How should we do that? Well, we've got some help in this matter um, by Latin American countries. Latin American countries are going through a tough time today, but 10, 15 years ago, they made enormous strides in slashing poverty, slashing inequality, increasing health and education, increasing democratic space in their societies. And they said, we can't just do this as individual nation states. We won't be powerful enough to take on and challenge corporate power, to take on and challenge capital. So we need to go beyond that. We need to set up regional trade deals that aren't about cutthroat competition, but are about complementing each other's skills. They're about redistributing from the rich to the poor, not from the poor to the rich. Now, they didn't develop that system well enough, but they began to start thinking about it, and they began to put into place policies that I think we can now learn from and encourage and push and demand the leadership of the Labour Party take up um, and adopt as its trade policy for the future. Um, and what sort of policies are they? Well, first of all, yeah, trade may be important, but it's not the most important thing in the world. It's not more important than stopping climate change. It's not more important than enforcing people's human rights. So every trade deal should have built-in override clauses that say nothing in this trade deal must, um, must uh, divert or disincentivize governments from fighting climate change and protecting human rights. Just like automation... Um, lots of things in trade deals are going to be bad for certain sectors of our country and certain sectors of our economy. That doesn't necessarily mean they're the wrong 
uh, it's the wrong path to go in to create a fairer society, but it does mean that those areas need to be compensated with massive investment, with new good jobs, with new skills, so that the people who lose out um, aren't really losing out. They're joining a new economy for, for tomorrow. We've never done that. We've always just said, everybody benefits from trade. Don't worry about it. Um, thirdly, no privatization, no investment protection, nothing that limits government procurement. None of these things should be in trade deals. They're about something entirely different. They're not about trade. Um, absolutely scrap these awful corporate court systems um, that give corporations special rights and replace them with special, special court systems that give us additional rights. If people lose out from trade deals, if people are affected negatively by the investment of big business in their country, they should have the right to international arbitration to take on those corporations. There are people fighting for this at the UN at the moment, including Ecuador and South Africa. Surprise, surprise, our government always tries to veto it. And finally, supporting regional integration so countries can develop by trading with their neighbors on a more equal basis, not simply by letting Western countries exploit their raw materials. And by the way, if we want to prevent a race to the bottom in Europe after we leave the EU, we've got to think about how we cooperate with the rest of the European Union to make sure that companies don't just trade off um, the standards and protections that we've built up over the years. Because as individual nation states, we are much easier to deal with by big capital and big corporations. So we've got to make sure that doesn't happen in any deal we come to with the EU. And very finally, any trade we do has to be democratic. At the moment, our trade secretary, Liam Fox, is flying around the world. He spent about six months in the Gulf, I think it seems, from the number of times he's been there. He's been to Turkey and offered them a hundred million pounds arms deal of, to the increasingly dictatorial Erdogan as an incentive to do a trade deal with us. Theresa May was the first prime minister to go and see Trump to start talking about a trade deal with him. Liam Fox went to the Philippines to see the murderous fascist Duterte and talked about all the shared values that we have with his regime. He's an absolute disgrace, but at the moment, MPs have no power at all to stop him negotiating trade deals. They have no power to set a mandate for him, they have no power to scrutinize what he's doing, they have no power to amend any trade deal he signs, and they have no power to stop it. There is a complete and utter democratic deficit when it comes to trade deals. If you thought the European Union was bad in terms of its secrecy and lack of democracy, you've seen nothing in terms of what Westminster um, has, uh, the power that Westminster has over ministers. So we've got to change that, and we're forming a big coalition to call for democratic, transparent, and accountable trade deals that are in the public interest and we urge you to sign up to that campaign. I think by doing this, by transforming trade and the way trade works, we can really get to the heart of an economic system which has given capital so much more power than people. And that's the essence of the globalization project. Our response is, as this beautiful banner says, our world is not for sale. The artist is down here. Thanks so much um, for producing um, this. And, and thanks so much for being part of this event, um, uh, uh, The World Transformed. Um, finally, there's the idea, I think many people have, that the, the globalization has, has tamed, has neutered um, the nation state. So the nation state no longer has um, any power. Well, that's only partially true. I mean, it's certainly true that the nation state has increasingly been... Um, unable to represent ordinary people's interests. It's been increasingly unable to protect its people um, and the environment under globalization. Big business is allowed to go wherever it wants, on whatever terms it wants, whenever it wants, um, and do whatever it wants. Meanwhile, though, the nation state has been used to increasingly imprison people inside their national borders. So the final thing I want to say is about how trade links um, to immigration. 
Europe's borders over the last 30 years have become the most dangerous borders in the world. 5,000 people died last year, just last year. That's 14 people a day trying to reach Europe. So at the same time as capital has been freed up, our borders have got harsher. They've become like mini war zones now. Just look at what's happening in Calais. Just look at what's happening on the borders of Greece and Italy. This is really a disgrace, um, and it should shame us all that we live in a country in the 21st century um, that enforces those kind of regimes to prevent the people without getting some of the resources that over the years we have pillaged from them. So I think we want to reverse the neoliberal idea of freedom for capital and borders for people. We want to say, let's control capital and let's free people. Let's have a more open border system. Let's have um, a more generous view about migration. Of course, that also needs to go along with protections for workers in this country so they cannot be undercut. Of course, it needs to go along with a serious industrial policy that invests in those regions of the country that migrants are going to. But it isn't migrants that have created the poverty, um, that have created the slashing of public services, that have created the desperate state that the National Health Service is in in this country. And they shouldn't be punished for it. Some people say, well, we're in a hell of a mess, and we just haven't got time to think about the rest of the world at the moment. We've got to, we've got to worry about ourselves. I think that's the wrong answer to the problems that we've got. First of all, it's, it's totally unethical. It's an unethical way to treat our fellow human beings, especially given that we, our country, our governments have created many of the problems they face. But also because I think that such policies begin to erode the soul of the body politic that commits them. I think that a good foreign and domestic policy have to go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. We live in an interconnected world. Our part of the world has made it an interconnected world, and we can't just say to hell with everyone else. We need to persuade our fellow citizens not just to put their hands over their eyes and their fingers in their ears. There are solutions to the problems we face. We need to become a less powerful country in the world, but a more equal one. Less material wealth at the top, more sustainable and peaceful in our relationships with the rest of the world. And that includes ultimately tearing down the borders that protect the monopoly of the few over the world's resources. Internationalism isn't just a word. If we like the concept of equality, of solidarity, of redistribution on which labor is based, we need very, very different international policies. And this is the time to start thinking about them and to start building for them. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Those offered some really useful, concrete examples there of what a global economic policy that actually challenges neoliberalism could look like. So now I'm going to hand over to Sarah-Jane Clifton um, for Jubilee Debt Campaign. Thanks, Emma. Um, I'm going to sit down because my hand isn't big enough to hold this and scroll at the same time. I hope that's okay. Um, also, just to say that um, uh, War on Want and Global Justice now have got their brilliant pop-ups here with their websites on. Um, we don't have a big team here at, um, at uh, World Transform from Jubilee Debt Campaign. So if the, you want to know anything about, any more information about what I'm going to talk about, you can go to our website, which is jubileedebt.org.uk, and we've got some materials out here. Um, and also maybe just a, a warning, Ooh, it's gone off already, um, that I'm going to be throwing some big numbers around. Um, so I hope that you've had your coffee this morning, but I can um, repeat uh, if anything uh, doesn't work. Right, just a sec. Okay, so Nick um, 
alluded a bit to the role that the UK and the other um, colonial countries played in, in creating the massive inequalities of wealth and power that we have in the world at the moment. Um, and what I want to focus on is how um, a Labour government needs to tackle the role that the UK is playing now in perpetuating those massive inequalities in wealth and power globally and the role that our economy and our um, economic actors um, who have a lot of influence over the um, British state are playing in facilitating the extraction of wealth from some of the poorest people and the, the poorest countries in the world. Um, Unfortunately, this is happening in a myriad of ways in relation to global finance and investment. Um, and I'm just going to talk about the main three. Um, the fact that the UK presides over a massive network of tax havens. The fact that the UK has one of the biggest financial centres in the world. And also the role that our um, government ministers are uh, currently playing, peddling rip-off deals like the private finance initiative to some of the poorest countries around the world. So starting with tax havens, um, most people here will know that tax dodging by multinational companies and by rich individuals is robbing um, billions of dollars of money from the public purse, both from our government, but also particularly some, from some of the poorest countries around the globe. Um, there's a recent report by the IMF um, estimates that developing countries um, are losing about 213 billion every year to tax avoidance. Um, overall, there's another um, US organization, the Global Financial Integrity Project, which says that um, unrecorded capital flight, which is like illicit finance flows, um, from developing countries since the 1980s adds up to about $13 trillion. Um, a lot of this, um, there's various ways in which multinationals and wealthy individuals spirit money out of developing countries. There's something called trade misinvoicing, which is basically lying about the um, imports and exports that you're making from countries. Um, this and, and other forms of, of illegal capital flight wouldn't be possible without tax havens. And by far the biggest network of tax havens is centered around the city of London. Um, through our constitutional relationship with the Crown dependencies and the British overseas territories, the UK effectively is the biggest global tax haven. Um, and so we are playing a critical role in enabling um, corrupt uh, government officials, multinational companies, wealthy transnational elites from extracting wealth directly out of the pockets of poor people in developing countries um, and straight into their ba hidden bank accounts. Um, Next up, the UK financial sector. So through the City of London, um, the UK hosts the biggest finance sector of any country relative to the size of our economy. So in um, 1978, um, the finance sector was about 200% of the size of our economy. Now it's 1,200% of the size of our economy. It's absolutely um, ballooned uh, because of the financial deregulation that happened in the 1970s. That's bigger, proportional to the size of our economy than the US, France, even Switzerland, which is effectively a banking economy. Um, this means that a very large amount of global financial assets, effectively of money and wealth, is managed via the City of London. Also, most global corporations, a very significant um, proportion of the Fortune 500 companies are listed in the City of London. Why is this important from a global justice perspective? Well, we're in an era of what people often are describing as um, globalized predatory financial capitalism. We had an era of industrial capitalism and that is still very much the type of capitalism that we're seeing in countries like China. 
But globally, we're seeing the rising power and control of the finance sector. So banks, hedge funds, um, high net worth individuals um, in all areas of the economy and, the so and society. And the growing extraction of wealth from working people, ordinary people, to those with assets and wealth. Um, we know what that means here in the UK. It means rising inequality and impoverishment. And that's exactly what it means on a global level as well. Um, does anyone know about the Jubilee 2000 campaign? No? The third world debt crisis? A very, so, um, back of a fab packet summary. In the 1970s, there was lots of oil money swishing around in European and US banks, and they needed somewhere to invest it. So they lent it to developing countries who were really poor and trying to develop their economies after just recently having become independent. Then um, the US put up interest rates, various um, uh, economic things happened, and a lot of the countries, developing countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, who'd taken on lots of debt, suddenly found their, payment, their payments on that debt increasing massively. Some countries, up to about 40% of their government revenue was spent on debt repayments in around the 80s and 90s. That meant they couldn't spend money on health, on education, on poverty eradication. They saw big increases in maternal mortality, in child mortality, people describe it as, as basically a lost uh, decade of development. That was because of irresponsible lending by UK and European banks. And um, to tackle it, a global movement um, came, came up called the Jubilee 2000 movement, which campaigned for changes to the global economic system, which had forced countries into that indebtedness, and for debt cancellation. Now, the movement won debt cancellation. It won about $135 billion worth of debt write-off for about 35 of the poorest countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. But it didn't tackle the reasons why those countries were getting into debt in the first place, the kind of extraction of wealth that I'm talking about. So what are we seeing now? We're seeing, since the financial crisis, a boom in lending once again from UK-based financial institutions to some of the poorest countries in the world. A lot of that quantitative easing money, which didn't make it into ordinary people's pockets in the UK, went searching, because we have no capital controls, around the world for a quick buck, for a higher yield of return. And a lot of it has been lent to um, high-risk debts for poor countries who are desperate for hospitals and schools. So loans to low-income low countries have quadrupled between 2008 and 2016. Now we're seeing exactly the same pattern that we saw in the 80s and 90s. Some countries are already in default. Mozambique's in default. Ghana's back paying 40% of its government revenue on debt again. Probably within five years, we're going to see maybe 20, 30 countries on either in default or close to it, very similar to what we saw in the 80s and 90s. Again, what's this got to the UK? Well, the finance sector really likes UK law because our lawyers, our judiciary, are very good at protecting property rights around the world. This means that a large amount of debt um, is written under UK law, is issued by, by UK-based um, banks and financial institutions. Banks and financial institutions base themselves in London so they can access English law and write their contracts under that. It means that UK-based financial institutions are central to this irresponsible lending boom to developing countries, and it means that when these defaults start to happen, vulture funds and other hedge funds would be, be taking poor countries to court in UK courts um, to get as much money as out, out of them as they can. Very briefly on the last final two things, um, and this really shouldn't be a kind of after point, but shadow banking. Um, so uh, 
much of the expansion of the finance sector since 1970s is, um, is uh, the expansion of the shadow banking sector. This is, um, very crudely, unregulated credit creation. So it's where banks are using um, uh, tradable financial assets like bonds and derivatives, like the, the dodgy financial instruments that caused the subprime mortgage crisis, um, to create uh, money. Um, and um, asset managers like BlackRock, where George Osborne has gone to work, are really heavily involved in this type of shadow banking and credit creation, um, using our pension funds, using our insurance money. Um, massive, massive amounts of money are involved. So BlackRock now manages um, its kind of uh, asset uh, book this year is around $5 trillion. So it's bigger than the biggest global bank, but it's not regulated. The global financial regulators at the moment don't see the asset management industry as a systemic risk. Um, obviously, if there's a crash in that sector, which is seen as increasingly likely, that will have massive, massive implications for poor countries who saw a massive commodity price crash after the financial crisis and their economy is really slowing. And then last of all, um, uh, something called public-private partnerships. So, People will be aware of um, the private finance initiative in the NHS, the fact that lots of our NHS trusts are in loads and loads of debt because Gordon Brown, well, starting with Margaret Thatcher, but then Gordon Brown and New Labour thought it was a good idea to keep, um, to invest uh, privately in, in hospitals, to keep it off the books in something which is called public-private partnerships, these massive rip-off um, ways for investing in public services. They were such a bad idea that the government, most, the government has effectively stopped creating new public-private partnerships in the UK. But the Department for Health, the Foreign Office, DFID, and the Department for Trade are spending UK aid money going around telling poor countries that this is the best way for them to invest in hospitals and schools, including some of the countries that have just um, uh, recovered from the Ebola crisis. So of the 23 developing countries that now have sort of PFI in their health systems, 18 of them have had um, British ambassadors go with British companies and run seminars about how great it is to run a PFI project. Now, this is because, very clearly, there's opportunities for UK investment and there's opportunities for UK companies from this. So, in summary, what does this all mean? Um, effective, five minutes, good. <laughs> effectively means that colonialism isn't really over. Um, during colonialism, Western powers enriched themselves by extracting resources and slave labour from their colonies. Now that same uh, process of extraction and enrichment is still happening, but this time it's happening through the extraction of wealth. It's happening through illicit, illicit finance flows made possible through tax havens. It's made possible through really exploitative, dodgy lending by UK-based financial institutions and under UK law and through the repatriation of profits by multinational companies, by the creeping privatization of public services, essential public services in developing countries being pushed by UK corporate and financial actors. And who benefits? Like with colonialism, it's mostly the global transnational elites who are benefiting from this, but we need to acknowledge that we are actually benefiting from this too. Through the taxation of the financial sector, through our pension funds, we're complicit in this extraction of wealth from some of the poorest people in the world. And we need to tackle that, and we need a Labour government to tackle that. So, 
what do we need to do, um, as well as tackling inequality and economic injustice here, and obviously the two are really go hand in hand, because we're only going to overturn inequality and injustice here if we actually build solidarity with global movements in a globalised economy. We need to tackle our role in perpetuating that inequality and injustice around the world. We need to shut down the network of tax havens, we need to tell the Crown dependencies and the overseas territories that they either become independent or they abide by UK law, and then we need to strengthen that law around tax dodging to shut down illicit finance flows. We need to do, introduce controls on lending by UK-based banks. So at the very least, it needs to be transparent so that people in Mozambique can find out if their government has just taken a massive loan for $2 billion from the London-based financial institutions, like what happened a few years ago and people in Mozambique only found out last year. And then we need to rein in the shadow banking industry and stop pushing rip-off deals on developing countries. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Sarah. That was a really great explanation of why uh, the City of London is at the forefront of what's now called global predatory capitalism and why we really need to be taking an international perspective when we're thinking about challenging it. Um, so just to tell you, there are lots of resources and materials about this just over there um, in the corner and also... Um, uh, there are stalls in the Synergy Centre um, where there's some more materials on all of this. So do pick up those materials and keep thinking about it and keep talking about it. But now I'm going to hand over to Assad from War and Want. Thank you. Um, my name is Assad Raymond from uh, War and Want. And uh, first of all, bring solidarity greetings from War and Want if you don't know us. We are uh, an NGO that works and stands in solidarity with our movements in the Global South. And we organise along students. Uh, labour movement, migrant and refugee communities, both here in the UK and globally, around fighting both the systems of oppression, economic, social and political, but also driving uh, solutions. Um, so what's great about following very, very clever people is they tell you everything that needs to be told. So uh, that means that hopefully I don't have to go into as much great detail. I could do a bit of a rant instead. But... <laughs> Those of you who know me know that that's quite true. So let me, start, let me say that we, let me begin by saying we live in a time of post-truth and, uh, and where actually the truth is no longer that. And it reminds me of that quote by George Orwell, during times of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. So I think the first act of Labour's new internationalism is to actually tell the truth. I think that's something that's absolutely lacking in the political and government circles. Because when we look around the world, you know, what we see isn't just a, a climate crisis or a migration crisis or a crisis of inequality. It's actually a systemic crisis. It's a crisis of injustice that literally says the lives of black and poor, and poor people don't matter. And it's a crisis uh, of, of, uh, of neoliberalism, of capitalism, that puts profit before people and our planet. And, and a system that really sees, as we've heard already, the global south as a sacrifice zone. 
So fundamentally what we're seeing is not just a, a crisis of a political system. We're also seeing a crisis, I think, in our own movements, a crisis of empathy and justice and solidarity. And Labour's new internationalism needs to rebuild that. So our starting point, of course, must be to be rooted in the truth. And, and I think you need to recognise that being radical domestically, and no matter how radical we are domestically, will mean little if we aren't as radical internationally. And that that only hope of achieving change, even here in our own country, is to be on the right side of change globally. So that means really no trying to put st plasters, sticking plasters on the gaping wounds that exist around the world. It's actually, we can't simply celebrate aid whilst at the same time systematically impoverishing people around the world. So we need an internationalism that really connects our fight against neoliberalism here at home to the fight against globally. So I wanted to focus on three areas to complement the points made by Nick and Sarah. So climate inequality and migration, they what I call the wrath of capital, as each magnifies and, 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 and reinforces each other and fans the existing flames of inequity that consume the world. So let me tell you a little few things first about climate, and I apologize if you already know this, but it's important that we start from there. So last year saw the world's have the hottest average temperatures since records began. And it's very likely, and it, well actually, it's more than likely that we know that 2017 will see a repeat. Raising temperatures by just one degree globally has been enough to melt half the Arctic, ice in the Arctic, kill off huge swathes of the world's coral, but also unleash killer floods and droughts all across the world. In Pakistan, where I'm from, Earlier this year, we had temperatures which hit 53.5 degrees centigrade. That's literally at the upper end of what a human being can tolerate in the outdoors. And that was before summer it hadn't even begun then. In 2014, we had a similar heat wave in Pakistan, and 1,200 people died in just one city. And this is a country where in 2010, one flood just one flood affected 20 million people. It covered one-fifth of the country and caused $43 billion of damage. And Pakistan is a country where four out of 10 people face multiple dimensional poverty, where literally one shock pulls, pushes people who are barely surviving into not surviving at all. And of course, you've seen all seen the pictures of the Sahel, the sub-Saharan region of Africa, drought there, currently affecting 23 million people, displacing three and a half million people, and the similar story in the Horn of Africa in Southern Africa. And you probably remember the pictures of Typhoon Hian, that super typhoon which hit the Philippines in 2013. It left 7,000 people dead, and it made two million people homeless which, interesting, of those two million people that were made homeless, only 1% of that two million people have been rehoused since that typhoon. And of course, we see the pictures at the moment of the Caribbean, reeling from one typhoon against another hurricane, destroying homes, lives, and livelihoods, smashing every development gains made by people in the region. And of course, the list is endless, right? Some people estimate, oh, climate change is killing 700,000 people around the world every year. But millions and millions of people are being impacted. Uh, uh, more people are being impacted, of course, losing their homes and livelihoods. And the truth is, of course, that 
Whether we talk about conflict or forced migration, gender and racial injustice, hunger, economic inequality, extreme weather, extractivism, systems collapse, you name it, they are all symptoms of the same neo-colonial and neoliberal system, which sees those people as sacrifice zones. Why? To enable us in the global north to be able to continue our unsustainable, inequitable consumption and growth model. So, and that model, is a model that we and our government continues, of course, to export into the Global South. So it's used by elites in the Global South against their very own people. So our new internationalism in Labour needs... Sorry. Yeah. From there. Or do you want me to stand? Might be easier. You, you can I can stand. Uh, I'll stand instead. Is that a little bit better? So, uh, so our new, new internationalism right, really needs to ask itself, are the lives of our people in the global south and those dying not as important as the future generations here in the north and I think fundamentally that has to be the question that Labour's internationalism needs to ask itself because even the climate summit in Paris where I was at you know and was rightly celebrated for some things but that uh, summit uh, uh, estimated that temperatures at the moment will lead to, the, the current emissions targets will lead to at least warming of between 3.4 degrees warming and 7 degrees by the end of the century. The World Bank, not the most revolutionary of organisations, wrote a very, very interesting report last year. And it said, if temperatures hit 4 degrees, the world and civilization as we know it for the majority of people in the global south will collapse. And that's why in, at those, in those corridors in Paris, there was a call from the movements in the Global South, and they said 1.5 to barely stay alive, to recognize that the realities of those climate impacts were already killing and destroying people's lives and livelihoods. And there was a recognition that this was the guardrail, that people and the scientists told us that if we cross, that we begin to spiral out of control. The systems collapses that will start to spiral out of control. And you know what climate scientists also tell us? They said we're in decade zero. That the actions of our governments and companies now, in these next 10 years, will determine if we breach that 1.5. And I say it will determine how many millions of people in the global south will die. That's what we're determining. Our internationalism will determine. So, moving on to, in terms of, if that's true, so all of this is true. Why don't we see this urgency and ambition? And I think that's one of the truths that Labour really has to recognise. And I always hear it, and it, for me it's summed up in this analogy, you know, that we're all on the Titanic. You know, we've hit the proverbial iceberg, uh, the cl climate iceberg, and we're ploughing on. And it's absolutely right that, of course, climate change is going to affect everybody in the world. But actually the reality is that on the upper deck are the citizens of the global north. They're still sipping cocktails, listening to the orchestra, hoping there's going to be some technological miracle that's going to save us. And in the hold are the people of the global south. Indigenous people, black and brown people, locked in and off, actually, and also the poor of the global north. And when people try and escape out of that hold, they find that that hold is actually locked shut. So I think Labour really needs to recognise and centre itself whose truth are we going to tell? Is it the truth of those on the de deck of the Titanic, or is it the truth of those in the hold? Because the reality is that just 10% of the world's population 
are responsible for 50% of global emissions. And 50% of the world's population are responsible for 10%. No guessing where that richest 10% live. They're here in the global north. Our responsibility is here in the global north. And, and of course, that sums up one of the greatest injustices of climate change, which is, of course, that those people who are the least responsible are the first to be impacted and are the ones who have faced the most severest impact because they lack the, the capacity, the resources to be able to adapt and, and, and rebuild after each impact of climate change. So Labour's internationalism hasn't simply to see climate change as an environmental issue, simply talking about it there in a silo. They've actually got to see it as a much more fundamental issue about justice and see it as a symptom of neoliberalism. And that otherwise, that, and ask itself, otherwise, I think fail of Labour will fail to recognise that the reason why there hasn't been any action since the 1970s, if this is true, if everything that people tell us about climate change is true, and of course it is, then why haven't governments acted with the level of urgency and ambition that's required? And of course the truth is that because there are powerful economic vested interests blocking that change. Those same powerful economic systems that prop up the neoliberal economic system, that put pursuit of profit, deregulation of protection, that put the market as the answer to absolutely every problem and have rigged the system to make sure that we don't take action. That's the same elites and these are the same elites who, of course, continue to promote this broken economic system that allows just a handful of them to own as much wealth as three and a half billion people in the world. And we all know all those figures, the richest 1% own more wealth than the poorest 80%, the poorest 80% only own, sorry, the poorest, richest 1% own 50% of global wealth, the poorest 80% only own 5% of global wealth. And it's a refusal to acknowledge, of course, that the realities of how we deal with climate are also about our economic power. A citizen in the United States, and we've seen the floods and the typhoons and the, that, that have hit the, the, uh, the United States, but a citizen in the United States has an average per capita income of about $55,000, right? and is responsible for nearly about 20 tons of CO2 a year. Those people who are suffering in the Sahel at the moment have a per capita income of about $750 a year and are responsible for about 0.01 tonne of CO2 absolutely every year. So I think the... Re oh, two minutes. Oh, shit. So we really need to take on the fact that they recognise that the dirty energy companies, the global energies, you know, are, 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 are responsible for, of course, 27.6 trillion in... In, uh, 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 and, and a profit of a massive 1.5 trillion in profit, sorry, 26 trillion in revenues and a massive profit of about 1.5 trillion in profits. And that, of course, allows them the power to be able to dominate our economic system, to be able to bankroll climate destruction. And that is incredibly, our governments, and including here in the UK government, are handing over tax, billions in taxpayer subsidies. The average rate at the moment rates, runs at about $10 million per minute every single day we hand over globally in direct and indirect subsidies to the extractive industry. 
So Labour needs to make sure that the UK is doing its fair share, and of course that means much more than what's being offered, 90% emission reductions by 2030. Labour also needs to change how we produce and consume our energy, not only nationally and globally. So that means more than just simply getting big, dirty, big business out to ditch dirty energy for clean energy. Actually, we need to see energy seen as a social good, owned and controlled by people here and globally. It means taking on our banks and corporations here in the city of London, that forced privatisation of energy systems in the global south. It means changing our trade deals that, 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 under, that, uh, that, refuse, that undermine the ability to be able to build sustainable in, uh, economies. And of course, it's to stop this neo-colonial model of extractivism, as Sarah talk, talks about. Look, the challenges are huge. There's 1.3 billion people in the world who don't have access to electricity, or the 2.3 billion people who don't have access to clean energy. We know that that can be resolved. But that's more than just simply saying to the poor in the global south, you can have the right to have one phone charger or one light bulb. It actually means energy for social and productive needs. And we know we can do that. And scientists have told us, technicians, technical experts have told us, we can totally revolutionize energy around the world if we support and back people's controlled energy systems. And that means about controlling and supporting people's right to own their own economy. And of course, labourless internationalism needs to commit to fixing our food system. We can feed the world three times over, yet we plough 1.3 billion tonnes of food into the ground, roughly about a third of all the food we produce around the world. Yet 800 million people, people of the global south, remain malnourished. And the truth is, of course, is the reason why that happens is that the multinationals have seized control of much of our planet's food resources, dominating the growth and processing of, of all of our food production. I've been told to shut up, but I'm going to shut up if you let me with one final thing. Sorry. Because I was also asked to speak about migration, say a little bit about migration. I, I, you know, last year, just over 5,000 people died in the, in the Mediterranean, men, women, and children. And of course, this year is going to be much more than that, and that next year will be much, much more than that. But of course, that's an absolute drop in the ocean to the 83% of people who are, in, who are displaced internally in countries in the global south or to other poorer countries. It's a drop in the ocean to the reality that actually what we call as economic migrants are people who are fighting for the right to have a dignified life. So our internationalism has got to centre the reality that people must have the right to a dignified life, but they also must have the right to be able to stay in their homes. The International Organisation of Migration predicts that one in 30 people will be forcibly displaced from their homes by 2050. That's less than 30 years from now. In 30 years, that scale of migration, so the challenge of Labour's internationalism is how will it address that? Will it be the walls and fences of the neo right that we're seeing building, going up all around the world? Or it will be a new internationalism that recognizes those lives are important. It means on the international stage, a new multilateralism. It means new protocols for around refugee protection and migration protection. It also means that we actually have to make sure that we connect all of our, these issues in terms of aid, trade, and development. It means an internationalism where labor recognizes that Labour recognises that this internationalism is much more than just something abstract out there or sitting in one department. It has to be at the centre of its economic policies, it has to be the centre of its political agenda, and it has to connect its national and global work together. Thank you.
Thank you, Assad. It's been, well, it's been very heartfelt. That was a very insightful rant, if slightly over length. <laughs> um, so, I mean, one thing that's sort of come out as a common thread from all three speakers is how um, neoliberal, challenging neoliberalism is really also about challenge, ne challenging neocolonialism. And really to do that without an international perspective, without thinking about how the UK are pillaging the rest of the world, is completely meaningless. So lots to digest there, so to give us a chance to do that before we take contributions from the floor, I want you to turn to the person next to you for five minutes and just chat about what you heard there. Think about any reflections, any comments, any questions. If, when Labour, if Labour gets into power, when Labour gets into power, what would you like to see them doing on global economic policy? What would you like to see their internationalism looking like? Um, and then I'm going to be asking for contributions from the floor. So maybe with the person next to you, you can think of something you might want to ask or a short contribution you might want to make. You've got five minutes for that. We're going to open it up for questions and contributions from the floor now. If you have a contribution, and by all means you don't have to frame it in terms of a question at all, but please keep it short. And by short, I mean less than a minute, and I will be shutting up people who go on for too long. Um, so I'm going to take a sort of few contributions at a time, sort of three or five. So stick your hands up, stick them nice and high so I can see you. There'll be a roving mic, so I'll be picking some people and pointing them out. So I'm going to go for this woman here at the back in the blue cardigan, first of all. Okay, so I'll try and be quick. This is both an appeal and a question, really. That I'm quite concerned about a report that came out from... Um, IPPR recently. Can you speak? Can you stand up when you talk, and can you hold the mic close to your close to your mouth, please? Thanks. Yeah, sure. So, this new report has come out very recently called "A New Vision for the British Economy" from IPPR, and I'm quite alarmed by it because, in one way, it says it's a you know radical departure from the consensus on the level of 1945 and the 80s, but um, going back to Nick's talk particularly. It doesn't acknowledge the role of exploited migrant labor in the economy or, you know, that Britain is an oppressive economy, you know, so it kind of assumes that the world is converging economically and it sort of brushes aside the problems that you've all talked about in such detail. So I'm very concerned about that. I'm glad to be among like-minded people now and I'd like people to look at the report and comment on it because that's what they're asking for. But I also wonder... Um, what else is being done or what else can be done to look at the economy holistically and see how we can move away from the neoliberal consensus but also move away from, you know, this growth orientation and towards, well, away from imperialism. Thank you. Uh, so the man here at the back in the blue jumper, yep, you. Thank you. Hi, I think... Oh. <laughs> Uh, it seems like um, there's an increasing interest uh, amongst people on sort of organizing against monopoly capital uh, and sort of organizations which have, you know, power by the nature of their scale. Um, you know, there was a pretty groovy uh, action by the European Commission. I know maybe not all fans of them, but uh, the sort of major fine they put against Google earlier this year, which really freaked Google out and to me seemed like a very positive action uh, and also seems something that we can kind of mobilize people who don't necessarily identify as socialists around as well, because 
you know, small business people don't necessarily always have to see big businesses as allies. So I guess I am interested in whether monopoly busting can become something that we in the British left can mobilize around. Thank you. Uh, this woman here in the grey cardigan, brown cardigan. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask everyone here um, what they will most remember from what all our um, three speakers said. And I'm going to suggest, because I can't ask you all, that one of the things we'll remember, because it's easy to remember, is Assad's Titanic analogy. And the reason it's easy to remember is because it's a story. The problem with the, the, the things that you were saying is that they are very true but highly complex. So my suggestion for the way forward is to find really simple stories, narratives to tell about the things that we want. If we can encapsulate not the facts, not the figures, but the stories, that's the way I believe you win hearts and minds. Thank you. I'm going to take a couple more. The man in red here. Thanks. Um, I'm convinced that Labour's investment programme is going to make the people of this country richer. Um, what I worry about, and I'm not advocating what's implied in this question at all, I want, I want global equality, but what I'm worried about is if we close down the tax havens and we close down shadow banking, as you said, it's 12 times the size of a real economy, um, doesn't that just bankrupt us? Thanks. One final point. Um, the woman here in the blue T-shirt. Thank you. Um, I'm concerned about, um, if you like, the reverse of the sort of immigration policies that this government's proposing, which is the idea that skilled labor's okay, but not skilled labor's not okay. I'd like you to say something about how this economy is actually pillaging the rest of the world in terms of skills and what we should do about that. Brilliant set of questions, thanks. Okay, handing back to our speakers. Who would like to go first? formulating thoughts. You're right, Nick? Yeah, sure. Amazing question. So I'll, I'll, I'll try and get back to all of them. I mean, I, I totally agree with you on the IPPR stuff. And uh, so we will have a look at that and, and comment. And I think it's a really good idea to do it. Look, I think one of the problems that we've got on the social democrat left in, in, in particular, and this is why it's in such crisis over Europe, is the idea that um, they don't accept often the fundamental systemic injustices in our economy. So growth is always the answer. Growth's always the answer because it doesn't risk necessarily the wealth at the top. It just means we all get a little bit more of, the, of, the, of, of it at the bottom. And that's what the Social Democrat compromise has always been about. I think the other problem is that for most of my lifetime, none of the mainstream parties have accepted that our country is, is simply too powerful. I mean, this little island is too powerful in the world. Why on earth have we got a seat on the United Nations Security Council? You know, and part of that power is linked up with finance, with big finance in the city of London. Like, that's how we make our power. That's how, when our empire fell, we decided we were going to project a financial empire around the world, and that's what our tax havens are all about, are all about and so on. Now, I think... Probably a Labour Party under Corbyn is pretty much the only time we've got to challenge that. It's the only time we can possibly challenge that narrative. What does it mean to people in this country? It, it's going to be a difficult sell because, you know, a lot of people in this country like living in a powerful country and they somehow think that makes them better off. And I think what we've got to do is explain it doesn't necessarily make you better off. It means you live in a much more unequal country. Um, which is, isn't good at all if you're at the bottom half of society. It makes you feel worse off than you actually are. 
and that actually by becoming a less powerful and more equal country, the, the, the incomes and the lifestyles and the livelihoods of those at the bottom will rise. Uh, many of our lifestyles, I think, because of climate change and because of the inequality in the world, we do have to, we do have, to have less material stuff. I mean, people like me, yeah, my lifestyle will get materially worse, and, and I've always accepted that. But, but it, that won't be the same for people who are really poor in our society. Their lifestyles will, will get better. But giving people the idea that their own livelihood, their own lives, and the way that they can enjoy life and live a dignified life is not tied up with this country's imperial power and financial power is, is I think, one of the biggest challenges for an international policy that, that we've all got as activists. Um, and, and I'd like to start thinking of ways, stories, um, like the friend here said, through which we can explain that to people and through which we can help people to, to feel that and to resonate that. Your lifestyle is not, is, is, is not based on like, the fact that we have nuclear weapons or a seat on the Security Council or that we're the, 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 the financial money launderer for the rest of the world. Um, and that's, that's big. That's going to be a really big thing. I'll just leave it at that one. <laughs> Wow, very much. Um, so, um, I totally agree with you about stories. The lady at the front, I can't tell you how much time we've spent in the office trying to think of like fun and illuminating ways to explain public-private partnerships, for example. It's really, really hard. Um, so if you've got ideas, please do send them. Um, but also I think it's really important, particularly with finance, because there's so much power and potentially so much negative impact that that sector has. We can't just be like, this is this big opaque thing and we just know it's bad. We do have to engage in the detail and complexity of it and also not patronise people. A lot of people know the processes of exploitation that's happening and our power comes in in understanding that and calling that to account. Um, I totally agree with you as well. I haven't read the IPPR report, but that's, it's a sectoral problem at the moment in terms of how civil society in the UK is organised. There's the people who care about international development, still often quite, uh, not these organisations, but in this quite patronising way of these poor people over there, and then the people who think about the UK as these kind of quite isolated things. It was great, the creation of the Department for International Development, but in a way that's part of the problem, this thinking that it's not joined up, and we do need to tackle that. Um, on if we close down tax havens and shadow banking, um, are we going to bankrupt ourselves? Well, definitely, this, we can't do that overnight. I think it's different talking about tax havens from the more reigning in the, the general finance sector conversation. So tax havens, really the only people who benefit from tax havens are criminals, corrupt government officials, the very, very super rich, and law firms. And in, in terms of like the net, the overall kind of extraction of wealth and the damage that tax havens do to our economies, um, that it's over massively in our benefit and the benefit of ordinary people to, to shut them down. Um, on the finance sector, we definitely need to both rein in shadow banking and also rein in the finance sector generally in the interests of our economy. There's a really good report the TUC have just published by Mark, um, Mike Marcusy, just looking at really how little, despite its size, the finance sector actually benefits ordinary working people in the UK. But I also think it's, it's quite irresponsible the way lots of kind of... Um, sort of uh, economic 
commentators of the left were sort of cheering um, around the collapse of the pound, saying, oh, this is finally going to tackle Dutch disease and that it's going to shrink the finance sector. Obviously, a lot of ordinary people are employed in the finance sector as well. There's a lot of secretaries and cleaners. It's a big proportion of our job space and tax take at the moment. What we need is a transition plan which rebalances the UK economy, not just away from finance, but also away from London, and really looking at making our economy much more resilient and kind of uh, climate-proof in the future. So, going just on, on the storytelling, I think it's absolutely, you're absolutely right. I think one of our bigger challenges, biggest challenges has always been about storytelling on climate change, right? So, you can, you, there's a lot to be learnt about storytelling on climate change. Because one of... Good. Good. Because you could say, oh, why, are, why is just ordinary people not engaged on issues around climate change? Say the storytelling of climate change was an image of a polar bear. Like, how lovely as polar bears are. But the story that it, it told you was that, some, that climate change is something that's abstract. It's something that's very remote. It's this polar bear on this iceberg. There's no question about power. There's no question about your in, in, interconnection. There's no responsibility. There's nothing. There's no story about it at all. And that's why, when most people are asked about climate change, they absolutely their answer tends to be, well, governments will solve it, right? And it's if it's an abstract issue with an abstract answer and that there's a technological answer to climate change rather than a political answer to climate change. So climate change, reframing climate change and reframing environmentalism to make it deeply political is one of the big storytelling that we need to do and I think that's starting to happen. And of course, that's been happening in the global south, right? Part of our movement, we just need to be better at maybe recognising that the global north doesn't have all the answers. That actually in the global south there are many, many alternatives, many different ways and much that we can learn on. And so one of those, of course, is around even this idea of a better life, right? What is a better life? So we've seen in Latin America people talk about living well. Uh, we've seen in, 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 in other parts of Asia people saying, well, actually what we should be looking at is well-being and not necessarily GDP. So and there's a different way of locating the economy. And what signifies actually a good life? Is it consumption or is it other things? And I think there's a powerful story that we need to be telling that challenges the storytelling of neoliberalism, that challenges the storytelling of consumption. And that is, of course, a much deeper issue, right? And that that's has to go in hand in hand with the, with the policies that we talked about. In terms of the issue around economic migration, and I would say, you know, if we, if, I would think we'd have to accept that we've lost Right? We're starting from a position where we've lost the story on migration, that the right have managed to dominate a story on migration in a much, much more powerful way. That's why even parts of our own late movement, progressive movement, talk about migration as if migrants are the ones responsible for stagnating wages and not the actual economic system or the banks or the corporations. That shifting of responsibility from the system to the individual. And that is an incredible, you think, wait a minute, how did we get here? It's because the storytelling on migration is so pernicious it's seeped into absolutely everything we do and um, whether people believe in what you know the rights or wrongs in terms of the freedom of movement uh, debate but it's an interesting because of what it says about how we talk about migration in this country about how we even think about the hierarchy of migrants right so we talk about skilled migrants from the EU against unskilled migrants from the EU and then at bottom of the level ladder of course is is migrants from the rest of the world 
skilled migrants from the rest of the world and unskilled migrants from the rest of the world. And of course, we, we, can, we are uh, ravaging many countries in the global south by taking some, uh, we know with the nurses in India, Philippines, Bangladesh, etc. We take on for our labour needs and of course the people are put on work permits and when capital doesn't need them, when the economy doesn't need them, it sends them, it says, okay, move on. And so the difference actually, I always find it interesting because people say, well, if you've got a profession then you're coming on a, on, a, on a work visa to the global north, it's a very different experience than if you don't have a profession and you're going as, a, as an uneconomic migrant to somewhere else. But actually the experience is very, very similar. Yeah, you can sometimes, your, your, your sense of your lifestyle might be very, very different, but ultimately you're a commodity and you're a commodity to be moved around the same way that capital is moved around. And that is actually what we've got to reframe migration to actually the right of people not to move the right of people to be able to stay where they are and to be able to have a dignified life and I think that's a fundamental issue and it has to be the cornerstone of a migration so I'm going to take another round of questions and then go to our speakers for closing remarks um, so the man here in the blue shirt yeah Hi, um, thanks very much for some very interesting and thought-provoking talks. I've got two questions, one of which is sort of a bit specific and one of which is more general. The specific one is, in um, about 2010, the three economists at the New York Fed produced a map of the US financial um, shadow banking system. And about 2014 or so, the Bank of England tried to replicate it and ended up with a map with massive amounts of white space because they just didn't know. So my specific question is, if you say we need to rein in the shadow banking system, do we actually have enough information to be able to rein it in? Do we know what it is? Because I'm not convinced, certainly in the UK economy, we do. The more general question is just to ask you whether the implications, the policy implications, particularly for the first two speakers, whether the policy implications of what you were saying were really that we need better regulation of capital mobility, or are you implying actually we need to control it properly, we need to close it down completely. And of course, that has huge implications for other things like, for example, Brexit. Uh, here in the black t-shirt. So I hope this isn't a naive question. My name's Andrea. I was involved with George here, George Barder from with Occupy. And here's my question. I mean, like, why we're here is because we're morally outraged by all this, right? And we want to do something about it. And there is this institution called the church in the world, and there are temples and synagogues, and how many, you know, people who stand up for what is righteous, apparently. And I don't think, personally, it's enough that they feed us when we're hungry and occasionally house us when we're homeless. I think that they need to be politicised. And I am wondering... I, I was just thinking, um, when you were all talking, about when we were all being evicted from the forecourt of St Paul's Cathedral, and George happened to be sat there in the middle of the forecourt praying... And we still got kicked off by St. Paul's. And I know they're invested in these governments, and I mean, in these banks and all the rest of it, right? But there must be some morally decent people in these so-called spiritual and religious institutions that need to be tapped into to help with this stuff. Thank you. 
So here in the white and red T-shirt. Uh, just coming back to the story for a minute, uh, what we talked about as a group was the notion of the Titanic, and you could take it further. And we thought you were going to say, at the end, of course, the Titanic sank. And what had happened to people <laughs> on the top level? They died too. And I think that's really interesting because we now are trying. So, for example, if you look at the NHS as a thing, and I work for Sussex Defend the NHS, you can tell everyone all you like about what's called STP, Sustainable Transformation Plan. But all you're doing is the government's work because you're telling that. If you tell them there will be no A&E in Brighton anymore, you're going to have to go to Worthing for your, for your A&E, and this is true. You're going to lose your GP. You're telling stories, but you're trying to make it real. And so my answer is we have to go with some sort of drama, some sort of stories. And something called Hydrocracker, a local drama group, are trying to put an, a, a story together with us on the NHS. And it'll come out this time next year, we hope. And I think, in a sense, I'm picking up this point, that that's the way we've got to go. Too much kind of... I mean, I'm not sure I like the moral argument. There's ideology involved. It's the values that underpin the society that are so appalling. And that's the stories we have to tell as to how... You, the, the implications of that. Sorry. And a couple more points. Um, so here, with the lovely dangly earrings. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, thanks. I was just wondering um, how much um, we actually think any Labour government would really be able to do. Um, like the last time that there was any chance that a, a government of that politics was going to get into power in the 1970s, like the deep state had a plan for a coup. Um, I don't think that it will be that literal or that, that explicit in the current context, but we could easily see a situation where people cannot, like, cannot get money out of cash machines, cannot, like, what, what is it that actually we can expect from international finance? What punishment will we get? Because when you say that, that it's not, it doesn't have an effect on people's day-to-day -day material existence, like, yeah, in one sense, we could imagine going through that pain and getting to another place and imagining a world which is more equal and less powerful. But I don't see how we would get there without there being a very significant period of extreme instability. And if that has come in the context of the first kind of socialist government we've had for many decades, like what, how would we prepare for that? Really good question. Thank you. Uh, final person. Um, so here and the end, the, the blue top. Hi, yes, sorry. Um, I want to thank you, first of all, for some very interesting presentations. Um, I said I was particularly fascinated by um, Nick's idea that we should, be coming, we should be looking to become a less powerful country um, in the context of this, um, in particularly in the context of um, what Sarah's talking about in terms of uh, global predatory lending. Um, my question is really, um, should we be asking ourselves in that context, should, who are we ceding power to? Um, so, I think in the con sorry, in so far as um, lending goes, if we were to reform our lending policies, um, even to the extent that we were giving money um, as aid with no um, conditions attached, would we, give, would we be giving enough money um, that those countries wouldn't then seek to gain more uh, investment through less scrupulous uh, neo-imperial neo states such as, for example, China? Um, Okay, thanks again for really excellent contributions. Um, so, who wants to start us off? So I'm gonna start with the, maybe the faith question. Um, 
because I think we all know that through history, faith organisations and faith have been agents for incredible transformation. Right? Of course, they've been reactionary and repressive as well. Right? But there is a contest, as in there is a contest in most, most places and most groups and most movements between whether you're a revolutionary or you're a reactionary. And you know, when you were made that, you, you, know, you, you, you spoke, it reminded me of that. I was reading once that the first time um, that the Islamic, one of the first time that the Islamists in modern day time called for a jihad was when uh, the Bolsheviks, in support of the Bolsheviks, um, talk, riding with the Quran in one hand and the red flag on the other. And through the Caucasus, that's exactly what the Red Army did. It went from mosque to mosque talking about, talking about Bolsheviks, Bolshevism and communism through the values of Islam about justice. And more recently, when we talk about the rise of the Islamists in the Middle East, when you look at their slogans, their slogans are land, bread, justice. Very, very similar to what the Bolsheviks had as a slogan. So we see this commonality, and we, of course we see this through all faiths, that the values, the values of justice are there, and how do we move that more from just being a moral question to a political question? How and what role will they play in the political movement? And that brings me, I suppose, to the question that the comrades asked there about what can Labour do, right, in, in power. I think the question about what Labour can do in power is actually a deeper question what can we do as a movement? Because what we do as a movement will determine the space for Labour to act in power. If we believe that just electing a progressive government is in, in, is in itself enough, we know that that is just not going to happen. We have to be building power, but we also have to be less learning the lessons. We learned the lessons of look at what happened in Greece, that you could build a movement as well. And of course the powers and forces against you are going to be reigned to undermine that government. So I think we also you know, need to be recognised that we are going to be in a huge fight. This is going to, if we want a transformational agenda, it will be resisted again and again and again. That's why, but we, we might not win if we fight, but if we don't fight, we're definitely not gonna win. And so the fight means that we must build a movement and winning coalition and building that movement is part of who we are, but it also includes, again, back to the questions, I think one of the things, we need the faith community. We need young people, we need, we need you know, black and minority communities, but we also need to be making sure that that movement is located globally, because if it's not located globally, then that's one of the reasons why we are going to fail. And we know that there are a huge resistance in the Global South and many, many different movements, not just in the Global South, but now we're seeing across Europe. So there needs to be a much more coordinated, I think, pan-European push to recognize what Labour's ability to, to act is going to be only limited by our ability to be able to open the space for it. I'm so cheered by the intelligence and passion in the room um, that I've got, I've got a lot of hope after this, uh, after this event. There are amazing questions. You could write a PhD on each of your questions. So let me just try in three minutes uh, to say what I can. I mean, I, I don't think we can control finance. I don't think we can control capital as one nation state. Um, and that's my worry about leaving the EU. It's not that the EU is a wonderful thing, um, but it's that it gives us the power potentially to be able to control capital. And I think as 
just Britain on its own, I'm, I'm very worried about our ability to do that. So we need to actually think about how we're going to cooperate. And, and I think we've got to move beyond this idea that we're just, uh, we're, we're back to the, the thing that we've been into uh, for the last 300 years of little nation states just trying to be nice to, nicer to each other. We've got to form uh, regional and global forms of democratic accountability and citizenship. I mean, actually, I think power's got to go both down to the local and up to the international at the same time to overcome, you know, the power, the, 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 the problematics of, of, of nation states through history. So that, that's vital for, 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 for Labour. We will be punished by the capital markets if we just suddenly decide we're going to try and enact socialism in one country. Right? So we, we have to have an international policy um, to get around that. Um, I, I don't think it's about regulating or controlling as a dichotomy. I think, I think we try... Um, uh, we try to suppress the power of the market and the power of capital over every aspect of our lives. And that includes elements of regulation, and it includes elements of, of full capital control, it includes elements of taking back control of certain corporations and sectors into public ownership. But I think not just the old-fashioned, top-down, you know, run everything from the centre. Uh, one of the most exciting things happening in this country at the moment is the energy democracy movement. R a local level taking back power um, over the energy system so you can control tariffs and you can choose where your energy sources come from. And then as much as possible supporting cooperatives to supply you with that energy. Corbyn is committed to it in his manifesto. It would be a massive, massive change. And it would not just be we've got one big centralized energy company. It would be that local people can actually take some control over energy. And I think we can replicate that over, over many different aspects of, of society. Um, and that's something which, which has um, huge resonance in the South. Um, where it's happening in many countries, as well as, as, well as here. Um, and, and to come back to your question about religion, and, and, and what I said said is totally right. I mean, look, the religious movements all played a big role in the, ending of, in the ending of slavery, in the ending of debt, in the ending of apartheid, all these horrendous injustices throughout history. And we've got to build that. And, and I am also worried, because there are huge opportunities, but I'm really worried about people believing we just need to elect this guy, and then everything will be okay. And, and, and I just want to, one of my favorite quotes ever is from uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the last social democratic president the US ever had, um, who when he was, he was approached by trade union leaders and civil society leaders, he said, I know what you want me to do, I want to do it too, you have to make me do it. Right? An understanding of political power. Political power ultimately rests with us, and we have to build a movement that is not only supportive of this leadership of the Labour Party, but is capable of acting independently and being critical where we need to be critical and moving it beyond anything that it believes it will be able to do on its own at this point. That's what we've got to do. Um, and very, very last thing, because I'd be told off by um, my staff if I don't do it, is we have a, a tour um, coming up soon with a Brighton meeting about the pharmaceutical industry, one of the most horrific industries in the world in terms of using its monopoly power um, simply to profit rather than to to cure and build a more healthy society. Um, so please pick up a leaflet and come along. Um, on the shadow banking stuff, um, you're absolutely right. I was trying to kind of make that uh, so, uh, simple and engaging, the, the reading and shadow banking. But you're right, actually, that there are big questions about the degree to which we can ever fully rein it in. There's one, there's one view where people think that actually regulation acts as a stimulant to shadow banking. So it actually helps create more complex derivative instruments. Whether regulators do try and get involved or understand what's happening, then the, the industry itself is innovative and creates new methods which are outside of that 
few. Um, but, but increasingly, um, the, the, the experts that we talk to see what is important now is creating a firewall between the real economy, the economy of kind of ordinary working people, our jobs, our savings, and that out of control shadow bubble, including definitely as a priority getting our pension funds um, out of it. So that if there is another crash, if there is a systemic crisis that comes from shadow banking, then as much as possible that doesn't affect ordinary working people. One of the things, one of the ideas which is being floated at the moment, for example, is looking at how um, Germany finances its housing. A lot of German pension funds invest in public housing because it's a really safe long-term asset. You can guarantee um, a, a good and safe return on investment. So how can we direct pension fund money in the UK away from this kind of speculative, dangerous type of investment and into stuff which would benefit ordinary people in the UK? Um, I think you're absolutely right about if we um, make these changes too quickly, uh, is finance capital going to punish us? I mean, very much we saw with Syriza in Greece what financial um, capital can do um, with governments kind of um, under its control. Um, but also, I think it, it's different for different areas. So with tax dodging, the UK has been the drag on, um, on, on global progress. Um, the, the, the most European countries um, are, are much further ahead in terms of what they're prepared to do. Um, and there's a big global consensus, really, about some of the things which need to happen around tax dodging. And it's the UK's negative role in the European Union which has been holding a lot of that back. There is a view that one, one of the few very positive things which could happen from Brexit is if the UK is no longer exerting that really destructive role on the tax agenda, that the European countries will go further ahead with stuff and then we'll have to comply with those rules because we want access to the market. And I think, ultimately, that's not balanced by all the terrible stuff which we're going to get with Brexit, but it's really interesting. Um, it's quite a lot of the things which we need to happen. They, we, we couldn't really um, tackle the, the UK finance sector without having the US do the, the same, so we do need a progressive government in the US, but we could, we, could take some, we could take some really significant steps forward which wouldn't really threaten capital flight. So one of the things we're pushing for at the moment is not a radical demand, it's around transparency. Um, there's more information on our website about this Mozambique case, but it's really disgusting. So the, the former um, president of Mozambique and his security forces borrowed $2 billion from um, UK-based banks, Credit Suisse and VTB. Um, with, with that money, um, some of it's um, bought some tuna fishing vessels, which aren't really being used. Some of it's been used for um, security in the north of Mozambique, where they're doing lots of prospecting for gas and, and oil. But there's about $700 million of it, which is just missing. Um, there's been a big audit to try and find out where it is, and it's probably in some bank accounts in um, Dubai or some offshore tax havens. I think the former president of Mozambique is now living in Dubai. Um, but we played a role in allowing that to happen because those loans were issued in under UK law. And a very easy thing to do would just be to require UK banks to publicly announce when they're lending money to governments so that civil society groups in Mozambique, in Ghana, can then go to their governments and say, hey, I see you've just borrowed $2 million. What are you planning to spend it on? Are you planning to spend it on a hospital or a school? Or maybe are you off to the Cayman Islands with it? Um, and just on, the, just on the final point, I think, about 
values. I 100% agree that that's where the starting point for this has to be in terms of building our strength as a movement and getting economic justice in the UK and globally. But I think the other thing that's really critical is, is um, starting to break down this domestic versus international um, division that the lady was referring to when she was talking about the IPPR report. And I think that will help us a lot also in terms of a lot of the discussions that are happening around immigration and the rights of immigrants and refugees. We really, in a way, need to go back to some very basic starting points about the rights of people for really, really basic things. The right to healthcare free at the point of need, the right to education free at the point of need, the right to water, the right to sanitation, the right to live in a warm home, and the right of people to have democratic control over their local economies. Now, um, we're obviously at different stages in terms of our level of kind of precariousness around the world. Like, precarious work is a very much a reality here in the UK. In global South, countries um, in some ways people they're at a kind of earlier stage of the disenfranchisement of people people are being thrown off their land but going back to those basic economic rights and the common needs of people all around the globe that we have to fight for those together and we global solidarity movements has to be the way forward I think thanks Well, thanks so much, and that was a brilliant session, and thanks for all the contributions from the floor. They were great. Just to remind you, there are materials at the back. Um, so, yeah, grab some of those. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I was going to say some more, but... <laughs>